0: are tuning into the Ubuntu People's Podcast, formerly Ubuntu Radio, but I think the Ubuntu People's Podcast. Why Ubuntu? It's an African phrase that, in one iteration, translates to I am because we are. My development as a human being is not possible without your participation, your engagement, and me looking into your eyes to find meaning. Episode 64 is part two of my talk with Dr. Bertram Ash, esteemed professor of literature at the University of Richmond in Virginia. On this episode, we continue to talk about traditional blackness versus the post-black or the post-Soul aesthetic, differences and similarities. We talk about popular culture, specifically The Cosby Show versus Atlanta and Issa Rae's Insecure, a broad swath of blackness and a particular blackness that's exemplified by Donald Glover and Issa Rae. We mentioned books that folks would probably get their hands on if they're interested in delving further into this topic. We talk about the particular blackness that is frozen in black and white in the 60s and that really there are gray areas throughout that decade. Of course we talk about the movie Black Panther. Dr. Ash says that it's a philosophical debate disguised as a superhero movie and I agree. I even get to add a little Jimi Hendrix as well as one of my favorite jazz songs. Cannonball Adelie's Walk Tall lets me know that even in jazz, there was still protest. I want to try to add that song to every one of my podcasts because I love it so much, but thank you for showing up again. Open your ears, sit back, listen to some good talk and some good music on Ubuntu People's podcast.
1: Bradley, a terrific novelist, refers to those as the years of the black. And you could swim against the tide then? I mean, Jimi Hendrix was was a black man who swam against the tide in the 1960s. It's not like there weren't any people that weren't absenting themselves from a kind of traditional blackness. There has always been certain people who absented themselves from a, a certain... blackness. I'm talking about somebody like say Gene Toomer back in the Harlem Renaissance and and there are others. But the difference now is volume. In the post Movement era, the number of black kids who are black in a way that makes it seem as if you have a relationship with whiteness and you project a kind of persona, personality, a, a way of being that immediately signals this person isn't the sort of person who grew up going to Baptist churches and trafficking in a kind of kind of traditional Blackness. Some of those kids grow into a kind of post-Black pride in what they are. Some of those kids, tragically, spring towards Blackness in a way that causes some of these teenagers, whose parents make six figures and work in banks, to dress like they're Urban poor and talk as if they're from any other place than they are. Not everybody's comfortable with it. It, it. it is in certain ways a persona that one has to become comfortable with because of the reality of and in certain ways the oppressive reality of traditional blackness. I'm not mad about that. I love traditional blackness. There's nothing I like better, quite frankly, than to be in a crowd of Black folks, whether it's in a club or whether it's at church or whether it's in a comedy club or what have you, and it's a deeply Black, traditionally Black experience with call and response and improvisation and rhythmic orientation, and it's it's like seat in that, right? The fact that, that that's not where I'm from as a guy who grew up in the suburbs and went to the United Methodist Church that was one-third white and one-third Filipino and one-third black, and simply didn't grow up knowing all the hymns that folks think It's like know, you know. <laughs> and it's not a tradition that I grew up in, but, oh my gosh, do I love being in that space and feeling that vibe. But the fact that I'm enjoying it in some ways, as someone who's born to having grown up in that experience, but by dint of the fact that I am black, I have entree to all black spaces that allow me to look in traditionally black cultural experiences, even though I know that I inhabit a kind of post-black reality, you know, I get the best of both worlds. The dichotomy between traditionally black and post-black is blurry as all get-up. And people who try and make it seem like they're separate and antagonistic are simply wrong. I just don't know any people who consider themselves to be post black who don't have deep and profound love for a kind of traditionally black reality. Yeah, I mean there there were there were a couple of things that I came to
2: accept post college. Not that I didn't know it, but I, I started to just accept more than anything. One was the not that I didn't know it, there was variety in black culture, but there was a part of me that. I obviously saw history from textbooks. I mean, I read, obviously, other things, primary sources, things like that. But for the most part, history from textbooks and eyes on the prize. It took me a while, probably till late high school or college, to go. Even as the dogs were going after the folks and the hoses mm-hmm. and all that, Bull Connor and all that, there were black folks on the other side of town going to work. Yep. We were not all in the movement we right. did not all like the movement. We did not right. all like just Martin and Malcolm. We didn't all do this. So, there came a point where I had to accept that even as, as smart as I thought I was, that I didn't know enough about the variety the variants of black culture. I knew Ooh. a couple things. Like I like you, I didn't grow up into that that church tradition. Like I, I was a comm major. I love movies, I love television, I love art. I love that stuff. And I cannot watch a Tyler Perry movie. Thank you. I can't watch a Tyler Perry movie, not because they're awful, which they are, but I can't watch them because they're steeped in this certain tradition that I have no concept of. This church every Sunday, do that whole thing. I don't know. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when I say stuff like that, they go, well, because you were born in the Caribbean, you're not really black. Fuck you. I am black. And I've been here (laughs) for over 30 years. I understand Hella more in this country than a lot more people that live here. So that's not even part of it. But that's not my story. So when his movie comes out, his movies comes out, I'm not dismissive. I just don't think they're good movies as a product. They're not. But there's another layer to it. There's this thing that he's playing into. And I understand why he's doing it. He's appealing to a certain audience, a certain demographic that rose him from homeless man to multi-millionaire going to be a billionaire, he's got to give them something back. He can't leave them by the wayside as he's ascending. I get that, but there are other stories, and I think I look at somebody like a, a Donald Glover. You mentioned Jimi Hendrix. I've never gotten into Jimi Hendrix music. I still haven't crossed that barrier yet mentally. In the 60s, it was Motown. Then it was James ushering funk. You know what I'm saying? The same thing you said. Just in the air. And I can't equate that with Jimi. And so my picture of that era is skewed to a certain black
1: aesthetic. It really is. It's skewed to a certain black aesthetic. It's dominant. It is dominant. So, the reason why you think <laughs> yeah but i agree but
2: fast-forwarding to today you mentioned these kids maybe they're the husband i mean the, the kids the sons and daughters are bankers they're trying to dress a certain way that has nothing to do with their lived reality but in terms of this close post soul post-blatness aesthetic and for me somebody who's trying to combine a sense of what was during civil rights or pre-civil rights to what is now is somebody like a Donald Glover or an Issa Rae. I look at them and I go, it's not Cosby, right? So Cosby, and people, people are forgetting because, unfortunately, because of what's happened to the man in the last 10 years, the reality of that is a mm-hmm. terrible, terrible reality. Mm-hmm. But Cosby show, 1984, it was the height of a certain aesthetic from the 60s. It was the height yeah. of we're going to church. I remember the, the episode about that, that painting, about that church procession. I remember that episode, how important it was that white America, let's be honest, sees this certain beauty in this certain art and, and how, how Cosby spent bringing back jazz artists that I realized later on that he made sure they got on the show so that you yeah, all know that there is this tradition, although hip hop is, and obviously Theo was into hip hop, but there is tra- this tradition where that came from. There's this artistic tradition, this visual arts tradition, there's this musical yep. tradition. And yep. sort of that was the apo- apogee of that in the Cosby Show. But I do see, I look at Atlanta and I see Donald Glover sort of mm-hmm. flipping that whole thing on his head and he's showcasing this, I don't know how to describe it, man. And this is your field of study, so maybe you can do a better job than me. But it's this individuated definition of blackness but there's still this thread of that 60s 70s black card up into Cosby aesthetic that I see but he's stretching it and it's very individual Cosby was was societal what Donald Glover what Issa Rae are doing are very individual but they're no less black you know what I mean that's exactly right
3: Who's that there, who's that there, in that mirror I don't care and they're aware Now I see just why they stare I just pay them, I don't care I know, so what I got an attitude Bitch, I got an attitude So what I got
1: an attitude
3: Bitch, I got I I don't sleep, I don't snore Too much money out that door On
1: my way to go to work I'm so glad you brought them up they there, to me, are excellent examples Of two shows that i absolutely refers to as both black. And keep in mind, both shows have a kind of deep strain of traditional blackness that's ingrained into the show itself, and yet the character that Issa Rae plays and the character Ernest that Donna Glover plays are characters that are deeply black.
3: I'm gonna have an attitude. Bitch, I got an attitude. I'm gonna have an attitude. Bitch, I got an attitude. So what, I got an attitude. Bitch, I got an attitude. So what, I got
1: an attitude. Bitch, I got an attitude. 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 And the reason I keep repeating that is because so many people, I hear the word post-black and they think that I'm, or the people who do the study of this school of blackness, are saying that whoever we point to and say that's a post-black persona there, that we're somehow saying that they're not black. And anyone who's seen those two shows know full well, it's impossible. There's no way that you can say either of those characters are not black. And yet, there is a difference to both those characters that speak to a kind of post-black persona that we also can recognize. And therefore, what we have is turn surrounded by guys and... Well, guys, because his, his girlfriends are deeply ingrained in a kind of Atlanta sensibility, even though that Atlanta sensibility includes right her. Oh Okay, hold up, wait a minute. minute, all good, just a week ago, crew at my house, and we party every weekend, so on the radio, that's my favorite song,
0: make me bounce around like I don't know, like
1: I won't be My daughter was bounce, so I took several years where I would time in Atlanta, dropping her off or picking her up, spending a couple of days there uh, with my wife. It is so interesting to see a particular type of black middle class young person in Atlanta that I'm not so sure I've seen in such numbers in any other city in the country.
2: What Uh, makes them so particular? And is Atlanta, is the show capturing that?
1: The show isn't really capturing that. The show is spending much more time in a part of Atlanta that's much more brutal and much more difficult to traverse. I don't know if you've seen the most recent episode. Oh, heck yeah. But, it was about the woods. Yeah. I mean, woods, look, yeah. you know, our, 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 our paper boys had a tough time. And yet, when I would go to the movie in the city, and these kids would float by and... Do you like, the, the, uh the term carefree? a carefree black girl or uh-huh. a black kid, they just seemed so still and so <laughs> above it all. It was so fascinating funny to see young teenage or 20-something black kids going to movies who bore, just by virtue of the way they talk or the way that they move or the way that they wear their clothes, you can tell that they have a relationship with whiteness. Right. And not a, not a debilitating one, and not one that's going to cancel them out, but just, you know. It's uh, another uh, shirt yeah. they can put on. It's another shoe yeah, that they yeah. can wear. These black kids that I saw repeatedly in Atlanta over multiple visits seemed to project a kind of affluence. And I don't know if it was really affluence. As far as I know, it could be just middle-class kids. But there was a certain way that they moved that I found. Absolutely fascinating. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're post black. You know, it's a designation that's a tough one to, to stick on somebody that you don't know very well or that you just see walking around. But my point is that I don't think that representation on the show Atlanta just yet. And you know what? Remember the episode in season one where Van had dinner with her girlfriend? From school, who's doing quite well for herself and was kind of giving Van a hard time. They went out to a restaurant and uh, she's asking about Ern and she knows Ern isn't doing particularly well. That's another kind of sleek, furnished, black, middle class persona in Atlanta that we get glimpses of. But the overwhelming majority of the time in that series, we see folks that are more conversant with the sort of person the paper boys appears to be, rather than Princeton dropout
3: turns.
2: You're from a certain era. I'm halfway between, I think, you and I think these kids that we're talking about, but I still have this notion probably steeped in that 1960s vision of quote-unquote blackness, that has always yeah. meant for me probably until I really started to dissect it more right around 2000. There was something that happened to me at the turn of the century where my ideas about what it meant to be a young black man in America. It was something that I've been thinking about since I was 16, 17 years old and they came to a head and I was doing a lot of writing on it. I started to recognize these these things about myself that I had this particular vision of blackness. And one, that's not the only vision. My all time hero is James Baldwin. And Ooh. I love the way Baldwin wrote. I love his truth. He's the most truthful writer that I've ever seen anywhere. But it's been 40 years since The Fire Next Time. Would it behoove me to be that angry about anything? And is it realistic? Is it realistic? I want to write like Baldwin, I want to be truthful. But do I have that righteous anger in 1999? And the other thing I recognize is people weren't ready for it. Nobody was discussing race then, at least in my circle. I'm sure these things are going on in the academy. You said from Nelson George, from the early 90s, race matters. All that stuff is going on way above my pay grade. I don't know these people. I know the names, but I'm not having these conversations like we are now. So that was happening. And then I go, well, what is the 21st century going to be like? And I started to presage this very thing I think that is happening now, and this is what you're talking about. It's about holding the banner of blackness, having to kind of explain to people what it is. I think Cosby Show was an explanation, a nice way of saying, "Hey, you nice white people who are looking at us at eight o'clock at NBC. This is all the blackness that you've missed. We're just regular people, we have families too. We have kids. We have this is what you've missed, but with Like now, these kids that you're talking about, and it's not that they don't give an F, but it's it's not caring is, is to me, it's saying you're thinking about it, but you're choosing not to give a shit. But these kids you're describing, or what I see in Atlanta or in Easter Ratio, the name, I'm blanking on the name right now, is just this this is me. And part of me is just being black. And it's not that I don't care if you get it. But a part of it is that I don't really care if you get it because it, it might not be for you. I think Cosby had to; he had to be the umbrella, and because of him, these guys don't have to. But there's this other part that I think, perhaps you see it, or perhaps folks in your generation see it, and certainly I kind of see it. Is that, and we go back to the Rudy Gobert example. There was mm. a point where the kid going to that movie theater in Atlanta, he would come up against the other and there would be a moment where something almost had to happen. It seemed right. to be in written in history, in black history, that's where the shit happened. That literally brought on progress for us right. and expanded okay. the consciousness, the sensibility, okay. the wokeness of this country. Our ability, our need to confront and call out America, to literally be like Gobert, go to the rim and I'm meeting you chest to fucking chest and I'm going to stuff this into the hoop and I'm taking you with me. And we literally took America forward with that confrontation. I think part of this post blatinous thing is is people maybe conflate or misconflate non-confrontation with no progress. Like it's clear to me Atlanta is progress. It's clear to me Issa Rae show is progress. It's clear to me that somebody like Janelle Monae being able to have a space to be herself, that's progress. But it's not the kind of progress. It's not somebody holding the banner of blackness. And I'm still unsure what that means. I think we're in this 30 or 40 year period of transition in terms of blackness and that's what you guys are probably talking about. I don't know.
3: What you saying?
1: Going on right now is you have books like Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, which I think is, is terrific and amazing and loved as much as anyone else. I just finished When They Call You a Paris, a Black Lives Matter memoir by Chris Concarles and Asha Benderly. Kiese Raymond is an essayist that's gotten a lot of shine lately. This is an explicitly politicized era. It's not the 1960s. But it is an aid of protest, and not just black protest either, although it's the same way that the women's movement and the gay rights movement and the protest, the Vietnam War movement, all grew out of black protest gestures from the mid-1950s when black folks began to assert that black lives matter. Then an offshoot of me, too. An offshoot are, you know, I just watched the news today. There's teachers in the streets all over the country because it is a protest era. This is a protest time. It's kind of the way the 30s were and the 60s were, or lesser since the 90s were, and to a far more familiar way, this 21st century protest uh, era is happening. Gray,
3: say his name. Money gray, Say his name, Gimani Gray, won't you say his name? John Crawford, say his name, John Crawford, say his name, John Crawford, say his name. John Crawford. won't you say his name? Michael Brown, say his name, Michael Brown, say his name. Michael Brown, say his name. Michael Brown, won't you say his name? Say his name, 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 won't you say his name? Well, there
1: their, their books to be written that aren't Baldwin, but are the Baldwin of this era. In other words, there are people that are doing their version of Hard in the Paint, Slam Dunking, You Can't Stop Me, I, I Got the Rim in Front of Me and I'm Throwing It Down. Right. When you talk about somebody like Janelle Monet. I mean, you know, her protest song called Say Your Name, Kendrick Lamar is recording songs and albums that feel of this moment. And all those things has elements of post-blackness. Like Some of them don't. But the fact that you can have a book like Between the World and Me, when he describes Howard University and goes in on the yard and the mecca and talks in very explicit terms about a kind of deep variety of blackness, that's a post-black gesture in ways that you would not have likely seen in books that were meant to accomplish a certain amount of pushback to American culture in the 1960s. Because then, it was about black unity in ways that if you weren't going along with the program, you had a problem. You had people in your face. You had people calling you an Uncle Tom. You had people, you know, saying that you, you weren't down. You weren't black. This is the era of Billy Paul singing, Am I black enough for you? Whereas Holtz's book, which, you know, heck, everybody everybody has read, felt completely comfortable talking about doing all sorts of things that might or might not be considered black. And Mm -hmm. that trip to France and the way he's clearly raising his son and the influences that he's making sure that his son has, to me, I feel like we're at a protest moment, a protest time but that it can't be divorced from post-blackness in any sort of, you know, bring the cleaver down and on one side of the cutting board is post-blackness and on the other side is traditional blackness and protest belongs on the traditional side and those that are not getting it done in terms of protest are on the post-black side. I think it's more complicated and more commingled than that.
3: Yeah, I may mean,
2: I also recognize that I'm looking at history, for example, that glorious late 50s 60s era of activism i'm also looking at that from a revisionist perspective i'm looking at people who then have a bunch of facts after that and then they write about it i'm sure Thanks. during the movement it's like i am sure that people hated king That king probably treated like looked upon on as the way some people look at kaepernick today or worse the same way they, yep. they, they looked at Muhammad in the same way, and then 30 years later you Absolutely. go, oh, what a wonderful guy, because he's not, Absolutely. he's not, he's no longer testing your notion of what is right, what is wrong, and what you believe. Once they don't no yes. longer do that, then oh, they're wonderful, they're great, but in yep. the moment. So I, 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 I accept that fact, that I'm looking back on that era with a certain vantage and a distance and more information, whereas now, you're absolutely right, I never thought about that uh, as this era and it, it's right in my face how much protest is happening. It's it's in my face that there are hundreds of thousands of people literally every weekend somewhere in America in protest with banners yeah. or something and yeah. 10 years from now when somebody else younger asked me what was going on, they're going to look back on the fact that I was in Raleigh last year there were 40,000 people downtown Raleigh And they're going to not know specifically what it was for, but I'm going to know I was there and just the sheer mass of it in a medium city like Raleigh speaks volumes as to the temper of the people and what, like you said, is really going on now. And I know I'm in it, so I don't see all of it. And 10, 15, 20 years from now, I'm going to look back and say, God damn. Wow, there is no difference between now and 19, the summer of
3: 68.
2: You know what I'm saying? There's there's going to come a moment where that is the reality. But also, you mentioned something about this monolith of, of blackness, and I'm guilty of that. But uh, of thinking, okay, blackness is a certain way, and like you said, there are people in that era going, telling Jackie Robinson, or even James Baldwin, you're not black, enough. there are people saying that. And if you didn't belong to it, you were outside of the norm, like Hendrix, nobody really paid attention to, like, I don't pay attention to Hendrix. And today, the variety of blackness is allowed, well, not fully, but there is more variance and there was more allowance for you. To, for Donald Glover, and Issa Ray, and all these people- to have careers. Or, or,
1: I mean, the fact, if you think about the presence of Afropunk in contemporary African-American culture and the fact that I've never seen an article critical of Afropunk and calling them out for not being black. Just haven't seen it. And yet it's filled with edgy, non-traditional blackness, the Afropunk movement seems to be completely accepted by post-civil rights movement, African Americans, in ways that, as you point out, and I mentioned earlier, Jimi Hendrix absolutely was not. It was an era where acceptance of non traditional blackness was not in the mix. And today, I don't want to paint a, a rosy picture of acceptance of non-traditional blackness as if those that are awkward or different or are into comic books or whatever uh, and play Dungeons and Dragons and try and have white friends as well as black friends, you know, those folks that are trying to live a non-traditionally black life don't get any pushback. They absolutely do get pushback. But as they mature, they learn to to appreciate the multifaceted aspect of their lives. That's not to suggest that those that are traditionally black shouldn't appreciate their own lives. What I'm suggesting is that everybody who's black should be able to be black in the way that they understand blackness to work for them. And then it's all good.
2: There or could there be a sort of baseline blackness? I, I don't know if I'm explaining that. So, so okay. So we're afropunk, uh, the Dungeon and Dragons kid, the comic book kid, the uh, the Star Wars crazy kid, all acceptable Sand forms Boy. of blackness, right? <laughs> all acceptable forms of blackness. Mm-hmm. But should there be, or could there be? almost a test, if you would, of cultural competency. I want to know that when you're having your fanboy discussion about the planets in the Star Wars system with uh, Ashley Smith or or whatever in the suburbs, in his basement, can you almost implicitly, in the way that Donald Glover would in Atlanta, emote, transfer some quote-unquote blackness and i know what that sounds based on the discussion that we just talked about no because i'm basically saying like there is but but you understand what i'm saying is there i I think that's the worry that's the worry that we've gotten to the point where we have not we have to accept we are different we are different people but when you're on the outer limits of personality when you're on the outer limits of normative behavior and you're having the conversations with the the jimi hendrix lovers Are you also mentioning Donnie Hathaway? Not that you have to, but you understand what I'm saying?
1: I understand exactly what you're saying. Here's how I've come to think about it. And the the funny thing is that the, the summer before my daughter went to Spelman, we had repeated almost endless conversations about how one inhabits a black space when they grew up, half in New England, where there are hardly any black folks, and half in Richmond, where the people that she was involved with were mostly artsy-fartsy. She was in art high school. And what I suggested to her is that there are absolutely traditionally black folks who, and they don't have to be from the hood by any stretch, I'm just talking about folks who have a relationship with blackness that they don't think about and that is unquestioned and that is, is automatic, right? As opposed to, say, the kid who grew up partially in New England and, you know, even here in Richmond had white art friends and black art friends. And then here she comes going to an HBCU. in fact you have the personal self-confidence that when the black test is administered and it always is and I don't think that the black test is necessarily all that different from the Italian ethnic test or the Jewish test or the, you know, whatever test that a particular enclave or, or ethnic group or racial group might have. But when the black test happens And instead of feeling alienated, you essentially are yourself and you talk about the things that you're interested in and you mention the cultural references that make sense to you. And if nobody gets those cultural references and the things that you're interested in, nobody else is interested in, but your reaction is, you know what? This is how I do blackness. Right. And I do blackness in this black space my way, and what eventually will happen, this is what I argue to my daughter, and what I I believe is she had a successful four years at Spelman for this very reason. Blackness is so amoeba-like. It is so expansive, even as it does indeed seem to have a core of traditionally Black behavior. It is so expansive that When you run upon somebody who is confident in themselves and confident in their blackness, even though that blackness is non-traditional and different and sideways, black people respond not by saying, you know what, get out of here. We don't do blackness like that. That's how they respond to people who are not confident in their blackness. But if you are confident in your blackness, it's entirely possible that Black folk will take pride in you and will say, "You know what? We can do that too." <laughs> and, and as a result, you're in. People accept you for who you are because you accept yourself. If in fact you're insecure, not in a way that that, uh, and, and I don't mean to speak directly to the, the show that we've been talking right, about, right, right, but if you're insecure and you take a stance that says I should be able to, people should accept me the way I am and I shouldn't have to ask and I shouldn't have, you know what? That person is going to, going to feel alienated in a way that they don't have to feel alienated. But the reality is if you have a collective, someone who doesn't quite fit the norms of that collective is going to be tested. Masculinity works that way. Femininity works that way. It's an aspect of humanity. We might not like it, but that's the reality. It's a part of life. But how you respond to that has a lot to do with whether you'll be accepted in that collective or not by virtue of how confident and how at home with yourself that you are, even as that self runs different from the norm
3: do that, right I you can't do that without loving
2: yourself th- yeah that's one of the things I I, I valued and I love so much about Baldwin that he was himself all the variances that he that's was right he was being yep. himself, is in the middle of just exhibiting and, and, and doing the very things that he's just not thinking about. He's not thinking about it. He's actually out there living it. And yep. it's funny, I mean, again, there's a, there's a swath of people, and I counted myself as one of them, who at points I would go, well, there is this definition of blackness, everybody thinks the kids from Brooklyn are like this, and I'm going to go the opposite way. But I also, like you said would look at a guy and go, you ain't black enough. You ain't, you ain't in the middle mm-hmm. of, of trying to be on the outer limits of it. I would still look at somebody and say, man, you gotta, you ain't this. You ain't that. You ain't that. But listening to you, it started to occur to me that throughout the history of this country, our only wish was just to be whatever the fuck we wanted to be. That's, right. That's all we did. <laughs> yeah. Voting rights, blah, blah, blah. We just want to be whatever it is we want to do and get out of our way so that we can do it. To that end, what do you think of the last 25 minutes of the movie Black Panther? Is that the most post-Black, post-Soul aesthetic that you've ever seen? I left the theater, and I've seen it four times. I left the theater the first time going... Did the bankrollers of this movie know what we were saying? Do they know what we were really saying?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
3: trying. I'm just,
1: yeah. I'm just, yeah. I've been out here trying to
3: see my homecoming. And of course, somebody's always gonna say something. Try and shoot me down for voicing my own opinion, triggering a part of me that's always been indifferent. Been blind to the subject but not blind to me And I know that this margin ain't too small for me Not too ill, not too much anymore, not enough And I know that we have asked for Don't
1: be scared to I love Black Panther just like everyone else did. I I, I find it hilarious that uh the question that you asked Another black person is is not. Have you seen Black Panther? But how many, many times? times have exactly, you seen exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've only seen it three. I've oh, what is wrong with you, Doctor Ash? There. What's so wrong with you?
2: You ain't black <laughs> enough, Doc. I love
1: the political tension and opposition at the core of the film itself. The fact that they essentially had this. Philosophical debate disguised as a superhero movie. Just thrilled me to no end. I'm perfectly comfortable seeing that as a kind of post-black gesture. If it had been a situation where Killmonger was the one whose political position held sway, and there's a, there's an argument to be made that it did indeed hold sway, given the very end of the film, you know and. I think, it's, I think it's fair for us to talk about spoilers. Now, you know, if they haven't seen... Black no, movie, let me see that. Now, okay.
2: Spoiler on. alert. I, I apologize <laughs> for anybody. If you are the one Negro who has not seen this movie and listened to the, Radio, the Ubuntu Radio podcast, first of all, shame on you, because it's been since Night. February 16th. Shame, 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 shame on you. But we're about to spoil the movie for you, so if you want to turn away, don't listen.
1: Well, the the political point that it was making was don't hide wakanda use the resources of wakanda to improve the lives of black people all over the world now he had a particular imperial rule the world sort of approach to that position but that was basically his position at the very end of the film T'Challa and the two women that went up in front of the United Nations with him was making it clear that they were going to do what Killmonger said that they should do. Killmonger's not going to be around to do it, but essentially he might have lost the the battle, but he won the war in terms of, the, of that political point of view. But the fact that it was going back and forth and that they had just struggled to have that argument play out over the course of the film really spoke to a sense that there wasn't a kind of firm position from which they were making the argument. And they just exemplified a kind of lush and absolutely gorgeous sense of blackness and black skin and black hair and, and black style and you know everything about the film again sort of steeped itself in a kind of very comfortable and familiar blackness even as what was going on with essentially the argument that animated the the political and philosophical side of the film it was <laughs> a sort of post-black argument, even as the rest of the film was as comfortably black as it appeared to be.
2: It was genius. That's Ryan Coogler, and director Ryan Kugler, director-writer Ryan Coogler, and um, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, Killmonger, blanking on his name now. Oh, um, Michael B. B. Jordan. Jordan. So Mike, Michael B. Jordan, Isha Ray, Donald Glover. I bring these names up because, again, in 1999, 2000, whatever I thought of blackness growing up, watching Those Eyes on the Prize, reading Baldwin, watching even you know, Sanford and Son or the Jeffersons or that whole line of Entertainment Benson and scene development and understanding what was really going on. And it came to a head in 1999. And I was, again, thinking about it, writing about it. But one of the things that I didn't have because I, I didn't know enough, maybe I should, have been, I should have been reading Nelson George and I should have been reading said, Greg Tate and all these other folks. But I didn't, I had no idea they existed. My idea of, of blackness, I, I started to see this variety in variance that my mind had not been prepared for. And the only outlet for me to try to understand it, the only space for me to try to understand it was to start reading postmodern, not philosophy, but postmodern thinkers. And unfortunately, they were all white folks. So I felt some kind of way about that. Udriar, Jeremy Mantham, um, even folks like—this is not postmodern, but like post World War II—Jurgen Habermas, and not my hero, but the person who seemed to conceptualize and make sense of the the world at that time and the world that come into intervening years. His name is Zygmunt Baumann. He is a mm. professor of sociology. I think he's still alive in England. He's Polish, and he had this concept of liquid modernity. And I'm reading that book and my mind, because where it's steeped at that moment in terms of blackness and trying to understand it where it is, where I was and where it was going because where I was going started to equate all these ideas about society to blackness. One of the things that frustrated me is that there's perhaps, I'm sure there is and I just have to go out and find it. There was no blackness in postmodernism. They didn't talk about race. Race didn't exist in them. And I'm sure there is. But at the, at that time, there wasn't. And I didn't see it. And and I had to kind of, kind of like the Gobert leap that I took earlier, I had to take his concept of liquid modernity and go, okay, if we're in a liquid modernity, then at some point there was a solid modernity. I equate solid modernity to white folks literally putting shackles and boxes around black people and saying, you can't, you can't. So we're boxed in. And then liquid modernity is is Cosby show. And we're allowed to do more things. And and then what's next is the gaseous state. The gaseous state is what you're describing where the tendrils holding us or tying us back to this idea of this so-called solid blackness. It doesn't really exist. It's going to be gaseous. It's going to be there. Like we know it came from something, but it's like air. It's not going to be this where I look at, you know, two people, two 60-year-old women walking around an Alabama street in 1955, they can just look at each other and go, yes, I understand what has happened to you because the same shit has happened to me. And moving forward, there's not, I think, going to be that experiential tie, if that makes sense. So I, I, I mentioned Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan and all these folks to say, I don't want anybody listening to this. If anybody's listening to this on a bunch of radio to go, man, I think the same thing, but where can I, what can I read? What can I look at to go, man, that's what I was thinking and expand on those ideas. So who was that there? Cause I think you were going to say that there, there is race in thoughts on postmodernity, their writings on postmodernity, because I find it to be the most fascinating thing.
1: Well, I certainly would go. I mean, great Tate is a good place to start. Okay. Um, but, you know, there, there are plenty of, of novelists, Trey Ellis, Paul Beatty, you know, Danzy Senna. Their work is challenging traditional blackness, even as many of them have characters in certain situations that have traditionally black characters and sometimes traditionally black settings. Both books exist. Um, Barry Jenkins, I mean, Coogler's terrific. Googler may be the most talented, but Barry Jenkins' film, uh, Medicine for Melancholy?
2: With Wyatt Sinek. Uh, was it Wyatt Sinek?
1: Yeah. Okay. It's, it's just absolutely marvelous post black statement. Whether he intended it to be that way or not, it's not up to him. He made the film. Once he made the film, it was up to me to see it the way I swear. Right, write. right. <laughs> I'll take it from here, Mr. Jenkins. Right. You know? So who
2: else? Who and, else? Because again, if, if somebody came to me in 1999 and said, this is what's, these are the other people that are doing this. Like, almost, you know, I, I put Black Panther and do the right thing. They're sort of, Spike was hitting us over the head. What I love yeah. about Ryan yeah. is that, and we're in this space, and that's what we've been talking about. He doesn't have to. We accept it. I'm going to be black.
0: There times when things don't lay the way
2: they're I don't have to preach to you, I'm about to be black. I'm just going to do it. And then it's up to you. It's up to you. Oh. Percival Everett? You ever seen Percival Everett? Mm-hmm. You know what? My problem is uh. I don't... I like nonfiction. I like essays. I, 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 I need to novels and things like that. they never, they've never tied themselves. I like sitting down and reading Baldwin. I like sitting down and reading Cornell West or so. I, I, I prefer that. But that's me. So who else? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking uh, in the voice of somebody who was me in 1999, who has these ideas, but I just need them expanded by
1: people that, like, man, I want people that look like me. I'm sorry, I do. Well, there's a whole bunch of really interesting essays. Speaking of uh, Hortense Spillers, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, there's actually a book called African American Literary Theory that has a lot of those essays in it. The sort of postmodern theory uh, is probably right up your alley. Yeah, that was the other thing in, in reading, um, and maybe I was a
2: precocious child, because was, that was my interest when I was, I realized and that was my interest when I was a, a teenager in high school, once I got uh, Zygmunt Bauman and his work into my hands and realized that this is what I was thinking. So mm-hmm. it also occurred to me that for a lot of the ideas that I was interested in were written by folks and I was never going to have access to them. Again, it's one of those things where we're living, like you said, we're living in this protest era so we really don't realize we're living in this protest era until 10, 15 years from now when we look back and say, holy shit, there's a lot of protests going on. I, I'm a firm believer in this. And again, perhaps because of my precocity when I was younger, because I thought about these things a lot. But I really do think kids have this innate understanding of these, these moral ideas, of these ideas about post-whatever, because they're living it. And yes, they've got to wait until they're 20, 30, to look back and have some sense of what it is. But I think there's, there's some value in trying to get them to understanding, understand a little bit of it as they're going through it. So I'm glad that's going on. I know we've been talking now, oh my God, for about three hours here. Um, I wanted to wrap up a bit. Again, we started a long time ago talking about your book, Twisted my Dreadlock Chronicles. It's available out there on Amazon. It's available online. Find it again, Twisted my Dreadlock Chronicles by Dr. Bertrand Ash, esteemed professor of literature at uh, University of Richmond right now. It has been an honor to talk to you about well there's not even a cap on what we talked about we talked about a great many things we right. talked about a, a great many things we didn't get get to go into funk we didn't get to go into funk, but maybe that's a discussion for yes, a discussion for, for another time for yeah. another time <laughs> but I appreciate you, you you taking the time and sharing your your mind and your heart with the listeners of Ubuntu radio with me in particular um, is there any bow at this point you want to put on The idea of of post-Soul The post-Soul aesthetic Or or, or post-Blackness Seeing that Where are we at? Historically We are Post-James, is it Comey? James Comey's book On the president On on the ethics and morality Of leadership That's the big thing going on in the culture right now We're we're past Black Panther We're now on to the Avengers So in a post-Black world What is coming back? What is coming back to haunt us?
1: Oh, I don't know what's coming back to haunt us. I will say that if your listeners get nothing else, I hope they get the the idea that. There's absolutely nothing threatening about post blackness. Nobody's going to come out and snatch your blackness and say that, you know, blackness doesn't exist anymore. I always like to take the opportunity when I can, speaking to a, you know, an audience that is, you know, outside of the academy and therefore isn't aware that there's, there should be nothing wrong with the study of and the questioning of and the writing about non-traditional blackness. There's been non-traditional blackness for as long as there have been black folk. It's just that now with the post-civil rights movement era, they're just way more of them than ever before and they're beginning to sort of make noise since the 19, mid-1980s or thereabouts. And uh, as a result, you know, they're available for study and I very much enjoy doing it.
2: Just the end of time. Black variety has always been there, it's always existed. It, it's only now in the light of the 21st century where everybody's open, everything is open, everything is right there, everything is in your eyes, and more so the folks that are part of this culture. They almost have a preponderance, they have a need to show you all that they are and all that they have and that's tied in with it. The culture itself is right. Right? exhibitionist sort of culture. So not that it's never been there, but y'all just didn't want to pay attention. Y'all,
1: you there know you who go. you
2: are. Dr. Ash, thank you it's very cool. much.
1: I certainly appreciate it. And I, I appreciate the reaching out and I enjoyed this very
2: much. For listeners of Ubuntu Radio, this episode has ended, but I hope you can... Come back, certainly, for more conversation. But for now, we are out.
1: Dr. Ash, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. All right, thank you. Bye.
0: If you've made it this far, specifically across the two episodes with Dr. Ash, I'm hoping it's because you liked what you heard. And if you do, well, subscribe, like, comment, engage, spread out a link through your network of friends. I like what I'm doing here. We like what we're doing. And if you do too, let that goodness, kind of like Ubuntu, spread. We're on Podomatic. We're on the iTunes or the Apple Podcasts. If you are interested in being a guest, engaging in some conversation with me, let's connect. Let's try to make the Ubuntu People's Podcast one of the biggest things out there.